0: Hello and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community, brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media, and made possible thanks to our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I am your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch.
1: And I am your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and your other host, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with the treatment professional before making any treatment decisions.
0: On today's show, we've got some good stuff for you. HFA CEO Dan Kelsey responded to the recent organizational changes and community reaction that we've spoken about here on Bloodstream. He joins Amy and I in an interview, followed by blood brother Carl Wexler, who joins us in response to talk a bit about HFA's history, mission, and his perspective on the organization's current state. Also, by the way... Happy Rare Disease Day. The last day of February is indeed the Rare Disease Day of the year, and this is our episode to recognize it. We got a segment to honor Rare Disease Day, guided by the voices from Bloodstream Media. All that and more on today's episode. Welcome to Bloodstream.
1: Listeners, as always, thank you for joining us today. And if you like what you hear, which I hope you like what you hear, please subscribe. I hope you do. All the things. Subscribe and uh, share this episode on social media so other folks can check it out.
0: I also want to remind you, dear listeners, that the Bloodstream Podcast is indeed made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. That's right, Takeda. Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds, Amy Which Board, I do, I as, do, well.
1: I oh, do as well. I do as well. Fantastic.
0: Strong alignment, and they are dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of support for you on your treatment journey, wherever on that journey you may be. And you can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, although, <laughs> really? Okay, <laughs> bleedingdisorders.com. <laughs> And for their founding and ongoing support, I would just like to say thanks, Takeda.
1: Thank you, Takeda!
0: (laughs) And thank you segment sponsor Genentech for supporting our Rare Disease Day segment.
1: Yes. Uh, Patrick, unfortunately, I'm sleepy today. I'm sleepy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love the candor. I feel
1: like you're going to catch me yawning, and I'm bummed about it. So apologies in advance.
0: Amy Board, it's still dreary wintertime. It Uh, is! The Lynch... It's like Lynch family's got winter colds. I'm at home instead of being in the studio with you. You're working on low energy. Listen, we're just, it is what it is. It's late Feb, you know? I
1: know, but this is such a stacked episode. I feel like I shouldn't be tired. Like I just, (laughs) I feel like I'm going to blow it. So just FYI.
0: The good news listeners is we already recorded the interviews on days where Amy's energy was flying through the roof. You're not going to believe the energy coming out of Amy. In these upcoming segments that were recorded (laughs) previously, so no worries. Oh,
1: man, good times, good times.
0: Um, You know, we've probably, Amy, at this point, talked about Rare Disease Day a good four or five times. I don't remember how many Rare Disease Days you and I have been co-hosting this for now, but, you know, it's a good time every year to just kind of pause. Uh, What is Rare Disease Day? What is this community of ours? You know, earlier today I was on the phone with somebody and, again, kind of citing that number, that one in ten people, has a rare disease. Each of them itself is a small population. But when you put it all together, it's one in 10 people. And that's just the patient. That's not thinking about the caregiver, the sibling loved ones. And the person who I was speaking to, who's a a big leader person at a rare disease uh, pharma company, made the point, and if you consider six degrees of separation... We're talking about 9 out of 10 people are impacted by rare diseases, which I thought was a nice pithy way to make that larger point. So it's such a misnomer in some ways that these are rare. Because, yes, they are, and some of them extremely. But the totality of us affected by them, that ain't a small number. That's hardly Mm. rare. In fact, it's quite common. Mm. But, indeed, this is an observance. It's the last day of February every year, which once every four years is February 29th and the idea of the day is to raise awareness for rare diseases yes and to improve access to treatment and representation for people affected by rare diseases and their family for our purposes here at bloodstream this year we thought it'd be kind of neat to ask a number of our contributors from different shows that we produce across a number of rare disease communities to just share in 30 seconds or a minute What Rare Disease Day means to them? What message do they have as it relates to Rare Disease Day? So since you've gotten to hear Amy and I talk about Rare Disease Day over the years, we defer to some other folks. So you're going to hear from Dana and David, Janet, Maya, Nina Maria, Tamara, and Josh on what Rare Disease Day means to them in just a moment.
1: This next segment is brought to you by... Genentech. Being the caretaker of someone with hemophilia can be hard, but know that you are not alone. Genentech has several resources for navigating hemophilia, including stories from other members in the community. In the words of Miranda, a mother of twin boys with hemophilia, since connecting with other hemophilia families and educating ourselves has been so helpful, we made a point of getting involved with the larger community and attended conferences whenever we could. To hear more about Good Miranda. Idea, Miranda. And, I know. Right? <laughs> to hear more about Miranda and others in the hemophilia community, please visit www.thecommunityhelps.com.
0: And now for the rare disease day segment.
1: My name is Maya Bloomberg, and I'm a hematology nurse practitioner specializing in bleeding
2: disorders and sickle cell. Rare Disease Day is a crucial moment to raise awareness about conditions that affect only a small percentage of the population, including chemophilia and sickle cell disease. I want the world to know that while these diseases might be rare, the impact on the individual and really the entire family is profound. These disorders bring unique challenges from finding specialized providers, to navigating treatment accessibility and affordability, to just coping with the emotional toll of a rare diagnosis. These individuals often face misconceptions and lack of awareness, making advocacy and education critical. By joining forces on Bird Disease Day, we not only raise awareness, but we also stand as a community that understands the intricacies of these disorders and get one step closer to an equitable future.
3: Hi, my name is David, and I'm a polycythemia vera, PV warrior. PV is a rare blood cancer. To me, living with a rare disease is not just a medical journey, it's a testament to resilience and the power of community. Rare Disease Day, for me, is more than just a date on the calendar. It's a beacon of hope and solidarity. It's a day when our voices, which are often lost in the vast sea of mainstream health issues,
2: rise and converge into a powerful chorus. My name is Josh. I'm the co-host of the PNH podcast and the PV podcast, Stories from the Marrow, and I hosted the Let's Talk Mental Health segment on the Bloodstream podcast for the past two years. My disability, I'm not even sure it qualifies as a disability. It's called aphantasia. It's only recently become something that is studied by scientists, and it's an inability to visualize with my brain. Uh, So when I think and when I imagine, I don't see images. That only happens when I'm asleep and I'm dreaming. Rare Disease Day is so important. It's an opportunity for the world to see the diversity of people who are living with various disease states.
1: Hi, my name is Tamara Scriver,
2: and I'm a person affected with PK deficiency. I also work with a nonprofit that supports people with PKD. I am super excited about Rare Disease Day. I think it is a time to celebrate all of the progress that we've made in the rare disease world. And it's a time to take us out of the shadows and put us into the spotlight for all of the um, progress that we've made and to make us mainstream.
1: My name is Nina Maria, and I have beta thalassemia major. To me, Rare Disease Day means recognition. It means being seen. It means bringing much-needed awareness to the community.
2: My name is Dana, and I have polycythemia vera. To me, Rare Disease Day means ownership and personal empowerment over my chronic blood disorder. Rare Disease Day enables myself and others to help educate the broader community so more research can be made to hopefully one day find a cure for polycythemia vera and other blood disorders under the classification
1: of an MPN. My name is Janet and as the Executive Director of Chess Foundation, my connection to the community is personal as a mom and sibling with a long family history of severe hemophilia A with complications. To me, Rare Disease Day means taking a moment to honor the sacrifices and challenges our community has faced to celebrate the advancements in care for those with hemophilia A and B, and hopeful For equitable expansion of access, diagnosis, care, and treatment for those with the potential to menstruate and all coagulation disorders.
0: Again, thank you, Josh, Tamara, Nina Maria, Janet, Maya, Dana, and David for your contributions. I also want to make it known. That Dr. Mike Callahan from the Cheat Codes Sickle Cell Podcast. Famous, he also Dr. Responded, Mike.
1: Dr. Mike.
0: <laughs> and this is going to add to the litany of reasons he is indeed the famous Dr. Mike. I asked him, hey, would you oh, like God. to contribute anything? And here's what Dr. Mike's text-only contribution oh, God. was. And he responded to the question, "What do you want the world to know about you?" with the following: "I am not so important that the world needs to know about me, but it would be I'd be glad to discuss exciting advances for bleeding <laughs> disorders and hemoglobinopathies.
1: <laughs> Dr. Mike, ladies and gentlemen,. So
0: Dr. he's Mike. there for all your bleeding disorders uh, and hemoglobinopathies. Update just God willing, don't once every five years ask him a personal question. I love or that he dude. will. Demur. But anyway, <laughs> um, last rare disease point, and then we'll get to our stuff uh, with Dan Kelsey and all things HFA, Amy Board, um, as you do know Amy Board, but you listeners do not. I'm actually <laughs> headed uh, to D.C. because the Every Life Foundation, <laughs> which is an organization supporting people with rare diseases, kicks off a week of rare disease day activities. In fact, for them, it's rare disease week. And Weak. that kickoff happens on Sunday, the 25th, I think, and th- it's happening with uh, a screening of Bombadier Blood this Sunday. Yeah, I got to go like very soon. Tomorrow, actually. I'm flying on Saturday. <laughs> uh, Chris Bombadier and I will be there for a screening of Bombadier Blood, which is being used to kick off Rare Disease Week with the Every Life Foundation and to help spur conversation about health equity and closing gaps across the world. So really excited about that.
1: How cool.
0: And I want to highlight, we'll throw it in the program notes, we won't belabor it now, but the Every Life Foundation has organized a few legislative asks that will be their priorities for Rare Disease Day during their congressional work in D.C. next week. If you're interested to know about these legislative acts, there are three bills and a request to develop a Rare Disease Congressional Caucus you can take a look at the notes, the link in the program, notes from the Every Life Foundation on legislative asks related to Rare Disease Day 2024. And with that, I hope you have a great Rare Disease Day 2024. We will now move on. We, uh, Amy Board talked to Dan on a day he had uh, more energy and uh, yeah. we're feeling really, really good. And I uh, had a good conversation about, as we talked to, you know, recently about. The shakeup at HFA, and is there anything that you want to share with the listeners before we just dive into that discussion?
1: No, I, I just, you know, am more and more aware as this has continued to go on that this is such a, um, a beloved institution of our community, and so it provokes a lot of feeling uh, on both sides of. Um, the coin, and so you know, I, I guess I just wanted to say in my own words that I just hear from both sides. I I have understanding from both sides as an organizational, um, you know, I, I think an advocate, a staff member, and also as um, a community member that has um, you know put so much. Um, passion and personal connection to over you know decades and decades so um anyway i thought it was uh, i thought it was great that dan came on and uh, kind of shared where the organization was at and where it's going
0: agreed yeah and so let's bring it to you now here it is dan kelsey hfa's ceo Amy and I are now joined by the Hemophilia Federation of America's CEO, Dan Kelsey. Dan, welcome and thanks for joining us today.
2: Uh, Thank you so much. Happy to be here and and answer any questions you may have, which I'm sure you, you may have a few.
0: Yeah, slow news time. Really, nothing much to talk about, but we'll see what we can dig up. Let's uh, let's start with some level setting, though. So you joined the organization middle-ish of 2023. Prior to joining HFA, what were you doing? Give us some overview of your background and career, your professional journey prior to joining HFA.
2: It's uh, it was a little bit all over the place, and uh, and I originally started in healthcare as a uh, as a hospital pharmacy tech. And, uh, and worked as a hospital pharmacy type for a period of time and then went over to, to patient accounts. I didn't know what Medicare was, didn't know what Medicaid was, knew nothing about billing, reimbursement, and did that. And uh, moved into the claims processor for the Indiana Medicaid program, which was a phenomenal training ground. Uh, got beat up on regularly as the person trying to explain how Medicaid paid for claims. I uh, fell into nonprofits, and uh, and a friend of mine worked for the Indiana State Medical Association, and uh, and said, "Hey, we've got an opening here. You might be interested in." And so I thought I would go there for just a couple years, move on. Um, 14 years later, I moved on from uh, from the state medical association and did a lot of work with membership and and payer advocacy and, and so on. And, uh, that's when I joined my first, uh, national slash international society as their deputy, uh, CEO working with endocrinology. So went from working with all specialties on state level to working with one specialty on a national level. And, uh, and that was really a great learning experience of uh, finding out what, uh, what a national, International Association was all about saying how they did education and membership, and and really demonstrate their value proposition. And uh, after that, moved into uh, to my first CEO position with uh, with another medical association. This was focused on people who worked in uh, imaging. Went through COVID with them, uh, much uh, an entire rebuilding process with them, and uh and after going through all of that, decided I needed to change and um and so I was looking for a position and uh that led me to h f a and I thought, you know I've worked on the provider side of things for my entire career. this is a great opportunity to work on on the patient side and and really try to make a difference and I'd had some uh there've been some touch points throughout my life, uh, with, with hemophilia. So, uh, so hmm. it really made sense to me to, uh, to go ahead and pursue this. Um, you know, I, I had seen a, um, a patient who was, my mom was a nurse and saw a patient of hers back in the eighties, early nineties, who was a physician, uh, with hemophilia and, uh, and saw him, about three and more three months before he passed away from from HIV, and then I saw him just probably a couple of weeks before he passed, and he was just a shadow of, of the person mm-hmm. he'd been before, and that always stuck with me and um, And then when I was in working in patient accounts, one of the most difficult patients that or accounts that I had was a patient with hemophilia. And who was who was mm. the primary payer um, so um, and then at the State Medical Association my boss there um, he actually left the association to become director of the um, IHTC uh, the Hemophilia Treatment Center there in Indiana and he's a um, he's stuff with the bleeding disorder community is with uh, NBDF and uh, so I did some work there at the state association uh, for a couple other uh, member organizations, and um, so it's just continually popped up throughout my entire life. And um, then once I moved here to Florida, my uh, my daughters became friends with some with another family, and one of their sons has uh, has hemophilia. So it just Kept on what popping are the odds up. Of that? Yeah, yeah, it kept popping up throughout throughout my life. So it's, a, so it's been an interesting journey.
0: Wow. Uh, there's a lot there, uh, including a few mentions of indie, which I know Symposium's going to be at. We're going to talk more about that later. But you mentioned community. You also used the word rebuilding. And, and that leads me to want to talk about the primary reason, obviously, that we're talking to you today, which is the restructuring that's going on at HFA. Uh, which, as we've discussed off mic, uh, many people in the community have had various reactions and responses to. So to ask it simply, when did you and the board realize that major restructuring, if I may frame it that way, was needed? And what was that process like?
2: Yeah, so my my first day on the job with HFA was a symposium last year in Orlando and uh, so i was just thrown in you know head first feet first i'm i'm not sure uh, but but i was completely <laughs> thrown into the deep end with it and uh, and learning about the organization and in the community then one of the things that i had to continually work on was just getting some some clarification around where we were financially and in really trying to get some clear insight into uh, our different revenue sources because of, of the changes in, in leadership that HFA had experienced and, and the resulting changes at accounting firms and so on, there was, I never thought there was anything illegal or happening that was incorrect. It was just the classification of of revenue and trying to really understand what was happening, what was expected, what was coming in and so on. So uh, I finally began to get a handle on that, I would say at the end of third quarter of, of last year. And that set me up to start work on the budget and as I was working through the budget and doing some projections for, uh, for 24, that's when it became apparent that, uh, that the board was going to have to make some difficult decisions, whether that was to accept a, a extremely large deficit for the budget, which I've never presented before, uh, to a board, uh, but, or if they wanted to make some other adjustments. And so what happened was the um, I, I presented the board with the initial budget based on everything that we had in place. And that deficit would have been about $1.8 million for, uh, for 2024. And this was on top of a, we're looking at a loss of about, 1.2 million dollars for 2023 and so the board said no we can't do a 1.8 million dollar deficit budget back to the drawing board so i went back to the drawing board and and they agreed to make some cuts to to a couple of different areas and and i was able to get it down to about around 800,000, and the board said now we still we still can't can't pass this on to the next board. We can't. They hmm. they made a really really tough decision of trying to uh, set a budget that was that was acceptable, and they asked me that to go back again, and I said the only areas I have left to make reductions are in staffity. And they said, give us some different scenarios. And I went through probably nine different scenarios and I gave them two or three of those that got us down to a def- a projected deficit in 24 of about $300,000. And the board said, okay, that's, well, we're willing to accept a deficit of 300000 And
0: and that was down from 1.8 million yeah. at your initial presentation.
2: Yeah, yeah, 1.8 million. So, you know, it was, it was tough. I mean, I, I never ever wanted to do that, nor do I ever want to do that again, because I've, uh, I've been part of a of a downsizing slash right sizing, what, whatever you want to refer to to it as, and, and it's horrible. It is not fun for anyone. Um, there's there's guilt from the people who are who are left behind who are still there. And you know, then of course for when it happened to me, I was the sole breadwinner and had a family to support. And just the panic that, that you have about trying to find a job, I get it. I completely understand it. So uh, so, yeah, that's really where we were with trying to make the reductions. And then, you know, unfortunately, after we made the reductions, the, the day after we we let staff go, I had another staff member then have submit their resignation. And, um, and then a couple of weeks later, another one. I think right now uh, we've got a solid group in place. and uh, And so I think we are we're in as good of a place as we can be at this point.
0: Fair enough, and appreciate, as you said, uh, that it was an, a process, an iterative and thoughtful process where a lot of options were presented and ultimately something that, you know, wasn't fun or easy for anyone. And I think it's helpful to, to hear that, you know, thoroughly explained as you just did. Amy, I have something that I want to move on to, but I want to give you a chance to ask any questions that you may have at this point.
1: I wanted to ask a little bit about some of the programs that are so unique to HFA. I think um, one of the fears that I felt um, seeing this staff reduction was um, what's going to happen to Blood Brotherhood, Blood Sisterhood, some of these very unique, special programs that have really found their footing in the community through HFA. And I just wanted to hear a little bit about your vision um, for some of those things for the community
2: yeah so with blood brotherhood blood sisterhood those were those are on hold at this time and there was there were some rumors that that got out where it was like oh well you let these people go we were we're heading up these things and so unfortunately that's that river got out, and that's all it is. Is a rumor. There was never mm-hmm. any intent to to shut down Blood brotherhood, but but sisterhood, um, Sangre Latina, or or any of the other programs. I know how important those are to to the community and for people to be able to connect and, and network. What we are trying to do, not only with those, but with with other programs as well, is is really looking at how can they be improved, how can they be delivered uh, differently, so it really makes um, makes more or has more impact on the community. And what uh, what one of our, our uh, former people, Brian Duvall, who was a blood brother, uh, he was he was working on. On a plan for the Blood Brotherhood program, and I plan on still continuing to pick up on that plan and move forward. It identified some people for kind of a pseudo focus group/slash working group to really identify what what they were looking for and and trying to really bring that back stronger and make it um, make it larger than uh, and more inclusive than maybe what it was thought of in the past. And I want to do the same thing with blood sisterhood as well.
0: Kind of along those lines, Dan, from your vantage point, which I appreciate isn't steeped in hemophilia history. I think there's great advantage to that. What is your, what makes HFA special in your mind? What makes HFA unique and valuable and quite frankly, worth going through this hard work to sustain for the long term? Why? Why do it? Um,
2: you know, it there. There's a few different answers I can give you with that, and and one of them is when when I decided to to stay in the nonprofit world, it's because people are trying to make a difference, and and regardless of the or of each organization I've been with, that's been my goal is to make the the association as effective and impactful as they can be. In terms of HFA, I heard about the passion of the community and and so on prior to uh, my attending SEM last year. And then while I was at SEM, I could just kind of feel like these tentacles, you know, kind of reaching out, you know, grabbing me and, you know, getting its hooks into me or, or whatever and and what makes Hfa so unique is and challenging is the passion of the community members I mean it's awesome there's such passion uh, for for the from the community uh, but that also presents challenges as well uh you know it's it you want people to be passionate but on the other hand um, I look at it as, almost being like the mayor of a city you're trying to make all these different constituencies happy. You know, you've got some people who want more of this service or more of that service and others who want the streets repaired and others who, who want, um, who want sidewalks put in and you, you have all of these different uh, competing Mm -hmm. voices out there and none of them are invalid. But the, the, What you have to do is figure out, okay, I've got this set pot of ferns. How how do I make this work?
0: And along those lines, how would you describe your long-term vision for the organization? I think that's something that I've been craving to hear. Like this question in particular I've had since hearing about the restructuring because as a community member, of course, the restructuring and hearing people are let like, go, oh, there's oh, raises concern, but also it signals, hey, the organization is really trying to do something here. But what is that something? What's the rest beyond the fiscal responsibility that was considered? What is the long-term vision? Where do you want to take this organization?
2: Well, so one of the things that that I've come to realize throughout this whole process is that HFA was founded to Help people survive, just live, and not die from from using products that were that were manufactured by what were supposed to be reputable uh, companies. So it was really based on advocating for them, getting them, um, getting them the relief that they needed. And HFA was extremely successful with that. Now, with the latest strategic plan the board changed the the vision to helping people with ble- bleeding disorders thrive and so it's it's mm. an interesting continuum when you think about this that we're going from it was established to help people just survive and now it's thrive and so that we're looking at at questions that people did not raise in the past, we've got some older members who are now caretakers for their spouses. And they're saying, I was never supposed to be a caretaker. I was the one who was supposed to have caretakers. Yeah, what's I, I don't know what this means. Or when I was a kid, I was never expected to make it to retirement age. Now I'm, I'm retiring and I have to go on Medicare and pick a plan. What does that need? And so there's so many more... De- more products now that are available for treatment. And what I'm seeing is, in the light of all of that, over 30 years, HFA has about 5,000 unique people in our database. But if you look at the CDC um, uh, stats, then you see that there's mm-hmm. about 30,000 people across the nation that have either A or B. And I'm thinking over 30 years, HFA has a database of about 5,000 people. How many of those people are we actively surveyed? Um, How can mm. we increase that total to 10,000, 15,000 people? And that's what I really want to do is I think HFA was really founded by a group of really of extremely passionate people, and they made a difference and and they were focused more on serving the individual. and nothing at all wrong with that. That's how a lot of nonprofits start. But now HFA has grown. We're in all fifty states you know we and so it's a matter of how do we serve the entire community. and what the what the board is wanting to do, and what I proposed, is being there for them all the way from from birth to end of life, and in really making sure we're not only there for uh, for the community, but we're there before before they know that that uh, we are there for them. So, uh, hmm. you know, for uh, from birth from the point of diagnosis for, for the, uh, for the boys through, um, let's say adolescence were, uh, beginning to menstruate. And what does that mean? What's that look like? Because there's the CDC again has estimated there's what 1.5 million people out there with von Willebrands, brands. And so what does that look like? Um, and and trying to make sure that that we're there for them, and you know, then also for those who are who are looking at having a family, and you know, what what do I need to plan for, you know, and and what does life look like for me as a parent now? And so there's all of these stages of life that that we need to be there for people, and I want us to be able to have the infrastructure to. Be there in advance so that if uh, we know that okay, somebody has attended SIM and maybe they were a new parent and maybe it's ten, twelve years later and they've got kids. Well, there's uh, if they have daughters and being a dad of daughters, I I can relate that there are there are things that happen. So uh, so how can we be there for the parents and and help them to to be prepared for those things that happen.
0: I think the vision of an organization that is moving from supporting people for survival to supporting people so that they can thrive from cradle to grave and across all life milestones, which is what I'm hearing from you, that is exciting. And as a community member, it also feels right in line with the spirit of HFA because sim last year was the first one i missed in 13 14 years um and i participate in other hfa activities around the calendar year but if i had to distill it down you know and answer what makes hfa valuable in short and it sounds a little trite and amy may you may have a different point of view of course but for me it is the community's organization. It's where I go to feel you used the, the the analogy of the mayor earlier, and I think it's very appropriate because when I'm at Symposium, I kind of feel like we're at the town square, you know, and the baker's over here, and you know, the other person who the mechanic's over there, and the guy I want to talk to about ankle surgery is over here, and the person I want to ask a question to about how they're working with their mild daughters over there. That's what I look forward to. As much as any of the sessions and learning about what's coming up, uh, the keynote speakers and all the education, it's feeling like I'm reconnecting with my community. It's not that NBDF or other organizations don't provide community engagement opportunities. They do. But just speaking experientially from you know more than a decade's experience, there is something different. About what HFA means and those tentacles or hooks, as you described, that get in like they're different. I am tempted to ask. It's not lost on me that the NBDF also just announced that they have new leadership. They have a new CEO who's only been in that post a matter of of weeks as opposed to coming up on a year. Have you I don't imagine you would have, but I'll I'll not assume. Have you had a chance to speak with Phil? Have you connected with uh NBDF leadership around this 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 new leader coming in? Anything there to share?
2: We have not yet connected uh with him and uh and in fact I received word today that uh that yeah, they the new CEO wants to connect with me prior to sim, which is uh which was great for me to hear because I think uh, historically, it was a case of, well, HFA can reach out to Inbudaaf when it's convenient. So um, so I think that I I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting with the new uh, CEO and having a chance to find out ways that we can definitely complement one another.
0: That's great to hear. again, and Amy, I'm sure you can speak to this too from the advocacy side of things and just from being you know, a piece of the furniture in this community for long enough now, the historic relationship between HFA and NBDF, in my experience anyway, has always left a little left me wanting more, more opportunities to do more together, to help each other on joint initiatives. So I'm encouraged to hear that perhaps on both sides there's a little more willingness to explore that than there has been historically.
1: And I will say over the past, I would say 10 years, um, the two organizations have worked really well uh, with public policy and advocacy issues. Um, There's strong communication between those two departments. So to further, you know, continue kind of our, um, you know, our presence on the Hill, um, especially when some of these big, you know, things that are affecting our community are coming up, that that will just continue to thrive. So I'm excited about that.
0: So let's now wrap up talking about Symposium, which is in Indianapolis. I didn't quite put together, I'm sure it's sheer coincidence that you have this Indianapolis pieces to your, or Indiana anyway, background. Uh, April 11th through the 14th, this is HFA's 30th year in existence. What can people expect from Symposium 2024?
2: Well, as you say, Patrick, the the one thing that is not going to be missing is the community aspect. I mean, we, we get it. That is, that's the one thing like you said that I've learned is the focus is still going to be on community. And so with, with this being our 30th anniversary, uh, we are, uh, we plan on having a history timeline and, and really updating things from what we did in our 25th anniversary. And we've got a, a sub work group, uh, working on updating our history timeline and providing some, uh, information and potentially, uh, items to really illustrate the 30 year history of HFA. There's going to be a presentation on 30 years of advocacy, uh, of HFA, so I think that's going to be really interesting for people to hear. You know, going back to Ricky Ray Act and and so on, and and then bringing it forward all the way to today with copay accumulators and so on. So I think that's going to be uh, going to be fun. And then we are uh, we're really just trying to make sure that this is an outstanding uh, meeting for everyone. And um. And we're looking forward to to sharing the experience. The I know with all the changes, some of the frustration has been, well, why aren't you saying any details about this program or that program? That's because everybody within HFA right now is one hundred percent focused on symposium, making sure that it comes off without a hitch and we have a great event. Um so uh, so I am looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a, a great meeting, and um, and plus ooh, we've got this this producer who's going to have this movie premiere there that I've heard about, um, and so really looking forward to uh, to that. I've watched the trailer for uh, for On the Shoulders of Giants, and um, and I think it's uh, at, at least the, from the trailer, it looks like it's going to be an excellent movie to watch.
0: It, it, it will be. And and Amy's put in a tremendous amount of work on that. And um, I will say, and listeners have heard me say this before, so I'll try to be quick about it, but this project came about directly from HFA Symposium. In fact, it was leaving a symposium session two or three years ago that Jane Smith at Santa Fe and a longtime community member whose father had hemophilia, whose, whose adult son has hemophilia... Uh, she and I leaving a lest we forget remembrance ceremony, wiping away our tears, saying yet again, we have to do something meaningful that really captures and elevates the stories of this generation before we lose all the storytellers from that generation. And it was at that day we decided, OK, no more. We have to's. We're leaving this meeting. And this is part of the benefit of Symposium, right? We're leaving this meeting committed to figuring it out. And here we are two years later, and now we get to bring it to Symposium. And I think it's going to uh, be—I will be surprised if it's not one of the things people leave Symposium talking about. I'll put put it like that. So thank you for the opportunity for us to bring this there, because that is where it belongs
1: it is where it belongs for sure
2: great and i am like i said i'm looking forward to it and uh, and just based on the trailer i think it's going to give a give people a new perspective on things so looking forward to it definitely
0: well dan so appreciate your time and your willingness to come on and talk to us about what's going on and and symposium And please, going forward, consider us uh, an ally, a partner. If there are things HFA wants to make sure reach as many community members as possible or want reinforced in a certain way, Bloodstream is here to serve the community. So we're on the same team in that regard. Uh, We'll certainly reach out when we think appropriate to do so, but never hesitate, you or your staff, to reach out to Amy or I or Keith, and we'll set up time to discuss whatever it is we got to discuss.
2: All right. Sounds great. Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Dan, and Amy and I are going to speak now to Carl Wexler. But just before we get into that reaction from Carl, as you heard us speak about with Dan, On the Shoulders of Giants, Believe Limited's film showcasing this incredible contingent of the bleeding disorders community and the unbelievable life experiences that they have had. That film premieres on Thursday, April 11th at 2.45pm. PM as part of Hemophilia Federation of America's symposium taking place in Indianapolis, Indiana. If you would like more information, if you would like to register and attend, you can visit hemophiliafed.org. We will also make sure there is a link in the program notes. And now, on to the reaction with Carl Wexler. All right, Amy and I are joined by blood brother Carl Wexler. Carl, always a pleasure. Thanks for doing this. Good to see you.
3: Great to see you all, and thank you for asking.
0: Yeah, of course. Well, It's been an interesting, newsworthy time, of course, and we want to talk to you about current events. We also want to make sure that our listeners and the greater community have the appropriate context for this discussion and your points of view, Carl. So could you start by giving us some background on 30 years ago, it's the 30th anniversary, how did HFA come into existence? Why did that happen and what did you have to do with all that?
3: Well, thank you again for asking me to be a part of this. Um, I am a little bit concerned at where things are going and where they've been. Um, I joined HFA in 99, and HFA started in 94. So I was five years into it, and I think I was at the third symposium that they had, or fourth. But um, HFA was originally started by the Committee of 10,000, also known as COT. And the Committee of 10,000 was um, an organization that was formed by Jonathan Wadley and a number of others, Corey Dubin, um, and a number of others that were very, well, pissed off. They were pissed off that a lot of us got infected and um, they were upset that um, things weren't being done to protect the consumer. And the Committee of 10,000 also worked with the Peer Association. And it was the Peer Association and COT, along with some other individuals, that formed HFA. And the reason it was formed was because NHF was dropping the ball and was telling us to continue to use our factor. It was a time that uh, was very tumultuous in that those of us who uh, were taking product were trying to be very careful of it. And there were also people that would not take their factor just to make sure that they didn't get infected. Um, HFA wound up being Called a federation for a reason because it was a federation of member organizations, not chapters. Now, um, when I was president of HFA back in the uh, 2000s, we we had a board of about 38 member organizations, so there was about 40 people on the board, and that was a a trick to wield as president to make sure that I moderated and kept the board calls and board meetings on track. Now, granted, I understand that HFA has reduced their size of their board, and I can understand because there's a lot of expense of flying everybody in for symposium and having a meeting. But, The thing that really made a difference to me is that each member organization had a voice. They had one member plus an alternate that sat on the board. And each organization had a voice and was listened to. Unfortunately, um, the board kept growing to the size where it was a little bit difficult. And depending on the president or the chairman of the board, as to whether the, the meetings were um, efficient or not. HFA, for the longest time, would not accept manufacturers' money. In fact, we didn't take manufacturers' money until close to 2007. and, I believe, 7. So it was a long time that HFA relied on um, home care companies and private uh, donors. HFA. He decided to stay that way for the longest time until we couldn't afford to not take manufacturer's money, and that's when the change came into play. Now, um, things are a little bit different now in that they've changed the board to be very small, and I can understand that. It's about 15 people, I believe, and I can understand that's a much easier group to deal with. But the problem with it is, for me, is that the member organization lost their vote. So, NHS has relabeled themselves as NBDF, and HFA has done something that I think is very concerning. When you let go a lot of staff all of a sudden, and you say that there's budget deficits of you know, astronomical amounts. It's kind of funny that um, budget when I was president was about $300,000 for the year. And we did Blood Brotherhood, Blood Sisterhood, uh, Dads in Action, and Helping Hands all on 300000 plus having a symposium. And And granted, times were different. It was a little bit cheaper to do things back then. But uh, at economies of scale, we did more with less than any other organization I think I've ever been a part of. Now, um, HFA has always been the consumer-friendly, family reunion type of meeting. And um, what I also liked was that HFA um, took and ran with an idea that two Blood Brothers had of getting all of us Blood Brothers together. And Susan Swindle ran with it and got the CDC grant for Blood Brotherhood. So a lot of kudos to Susan Swindle. Um, now, with what has happened is got me a little bit concerned that they have put on hold the blood brotherhood and blood sisterhood. And that makes me want to ask the question, what does on hold mean? Is that like in the old days when you had tech support that you could call and actually get somebody to help you, but you stayed on the terminal hold until, you know, somebody picked up the phone? Are we on terminal hold right now? Are we just waiting? Uh, What's the deal? So um, my concern is that HFA may have already made a critical error and may not be viable to come back, but I don't want to believe that. I believe that HFA is viable, that it can come back, that it can be stronger than it was before, but only under one condition, and that is to take off merging with NBDF off the table. And the other reason I say that is because HFA should never be a part of
0: NBDF. If we take that off the table, Carl, and based on what you heard from Dan, what do you think is HFA's best path to a sustainable community-oriented future, given where it is right now? One,
3: I would, I would like to look at the budget because that's it's all based on money right now. I mean, all the employee cuts were based on money, and um, taking services off of the table is all based on money. I'd like to see where the the budget is, and I do understand that the revenue stream is drying up. I do understand that it's gotten harder to make. Um, the revenue stream consistent. That being said, I think they need to look outside of the hemophilia community manufacturers and look to other streams that um, a lot of other organizations will use. I guess my concern is with Dan and what I listened to on the on the your podcast. And unfortunately for Dan, one of his emails got leaked. And in his email that I read, um it was kind of discouraging to read the email. He it made me feel in one part um he was quoting statistics of how many people with hemophilia and von Willebrands there are and how many people that are over the age of 50 with hemophilia. And I felt very dismissed in that HFA would rather focus on kids because the statistic he gave was something like the majority of people with hemophilia are between the ages of 2 and 10. And that means that they're focused on kids, not on adults. And if it weren't for us adults, we wouldn't be in the place we're in with recombinant products, with sub-Q products, and with gene therapy.
0: So Carl, if you could advise Dan and the current board on some things they could do across the rest of this year to help make sure community members such as yourself, because I'm sure you're not alone from feeling... Uh, dismissed or reduced in some way by some of the language and and, and some of what's going on. How could HFA best communicate to you and people like you that we are your organization too? Perhaps we made a misstep. We're listening. We want to work with you. What what would you advise given your experience with the organization and the fact that you are a lived experienced expert?
3: Well, that's kind of a tough question because there are so many variables that come into play. My first advice would be to reinstate blood brotherhood and blood sisterhood because that's where the um, where the community's heart really is. And two of the um, programs that I believe have made probably the biggest impact in the lives of community members because of just the um, exchange that happens between brothers and sisters. Now, granted, um, I would love to see Dad's In Action come back as well. And then there's also a mom's group that we had at one point that I would love to see come back. But I think going back to the basics, like helping hands. I'm a little concerned that helping hands has been put on hold because my understanding is there was an endowment that was given for helping hands that could not be touched. And I don't know, has that endowment been touched? Why is helping hands on hold if there is an endowment? So I have, um, he, he said something in his email about transparency. And I think that the transparency has not been there. Um, I think it's gotten kind of uh, overshadowed with innuendo and and rumors. And there's not been um, a forthcoming with how the organization has been run. An annual report would be great to see.
0: But um, that hasn't happened. Carl, are you planning to attend Symposium?
3: I am trying to make it to where I can come up for at least part of it. Unfortunately, I don't have a lot of vacation time. I no longer work in industry, so I work a real job.
0: So Symposium isn't a work event for you anymore, huh?
3: No, it's not, unfortunately. I am going to try to make it. Um, but I don't know right now if I am or not.
0: Well, I certainly, and I think I speak for Amy as well, appreciate the candor and level setting that you provide in this discussion. And I also appreciate that you acknowledged as as we have as well that that yeah, the, Dan they, and the current organization aren't necessarily in an enviable spot. It's not necessary. It's not yeah. as though things were. Uh, going a, swimmingly a, a, a before they made decisions that they made. So I think I, I appreciate that you you underscored that, too, in your comments and fairness to them.
3: Yeah, it, it's not an easy job. I mean, I've been there and done that. And when Susan and I were the, the pair, because Susan was executive director when I was president, and um, she had really a tough job. And so did I to, to some degree, because there were some things that happened during HFA's early years that wound up landing in my lap that I had to fix. And, um, you're not going to please everybody all the time, but you can keep the basics, um, in front of you.
0: That's really well said. And I hope, you're able to make it to symposium. If so, I hope that we'll have a chance to see you there in person. Amy, is there anything that you'd like to ask or share with Carl before we let him go?
1: Carl, I just uh, appreciate your candor. And uh, alongside with you, we're we're really um, hopeful for um, this next season in HFA's life cycle. Um, I, I know it is a A hot-button topic because it has been so important to so many lives and so that just needs to be restated that it is such an important important organization in this community
3: any final thoughts from you Carl don't want to put her on the spot but I think that the organization that has come to the the top of the crop is the Coalition for Hemophilia B I think that they have done a wonderful job at listening to the community to finding ways to really support the community. And even though it's just for us hemophilia bees, um, I think that they've done a really good job and HFA could take a, a, a lesson from its own history and from the coalition.
0: Well, thank you, Carl. Hope to see you soon all right carl wexler thank you for joining us for that again thank you to dan kelsey hfa ceo and thanks to all our contributors to the rare disease day segment before we close out the episode and and look ahead amy i'm cognizant that you and i haven't commented all too much on the interview with dan or carl we just spoke to carl moments ago and and here we are now so Given everything that we've learned about all things HFA in the last number of weeks, up until just a few minutes ago, where are you at? What are you thinking about?
1: Well, i i very much um, I, I very much wish the organization well. We have uh, we have an interview coming up with an HFA staff member, um, Shelley, who is wonderful in future episodes who has expressed a lot of excitement about where the organization is going to go and about um, some of the programs. So I don't want to feel doom and gloom, but I do Um, I think some of my reaction, I'd be very interested to hear others' reactions, but I think some of my reaction um, to uh, Dan coming on, to Carl speaking, is that some of the, um, almost like the talking points that are being put out there about this transition of the organization have added a little bit more fuel to the fire than what um, could actually help heal this particular time and move forward. I think from an organizational structure standpoint, Life cycles of organizations change and they they do. And we all know that there is massive funding changes for our nonprofit organizations. That is just we all know that that is a thing. It's happening. It's a thing. But this is kind of um, it has felt to me um, through the community, through Seeing some of the emails that have been swapped, it just feels like it is a tumbleweed that's just continuing to tumble rather than um, a Hmm. true healing of a a wound and moving forward and really identifying and, and being able to hear... I think, valid concern about certain things that this organization did on its own. It's very difficult to have programs in the bleeding disorders community that someone else doesn't replicate. And HFA has done that for decades. So I just I I guess that's my my thought is that I hope that the talking points coming out of the organization moving forward are more I don't know. I don't know what the word is. Maybe you could help, Patrick. Um...
0: I mean, maybe nuanced. There's just there's there's a level of look, it's tough. You can't be everything to everyone. And this is a diverse and growing community. And what even defines community seems like a question. Every six to 12 months we come back, our industry included, if it's industry that our community. And we're never going to stop having complicated questions to wrestle with, even about who we are at a foundational level. We're talking about curative therapies for the love of whatever. (laughs) Like this is tough stuff. So I think for me, I love what you said about that. Well, I don't, I think it's accurate or descriptive anyway about this tumbleweed. We don't need conversation that is unproductive to sort of just meander around and stir up people's emotions. We need to ultimately funnel that towards some collective action. I would like to think, and at the risk of sounding too simpy here, that Symposium is the first best next opportunity to gather and talk, be in rooms, share your points of view, You have to have a seat at the table and be inside the room to influence the direction of the conversation happening there. So I don't think not attending ought to be a response. If you don't have the funds, if there's logistical challenge, that's different. But as an act of protest, I think that's cutting off your nose to spite your face. I think this is a time for us to hunker in, figure this out, listen, listen, listen and accept that it's not going to feel comfortable right away. So I'm glad that we have, you know, we we, we had Dan on. We had Carl, who was board president for a very long and an instrumental period. We've got Phil, the new CEO from NBDF, coming on soon. People are talking. We've got leaders talking. They are having conversations about that, which is most important to us. So even if we're unsatisfied with where things stand today, we should take some amount of comfort from the fact that we are actively engaged in important dialogue that isn't always the case.
1: Touche. And I and I have to say, on top of the symposium, which I, I just so agree with, what what a phenomenal call to action for our community. Also, and this not this not even a plug. This isn't even a plug. The film On the Shoulders with Giants will be premiering there. And what an incredible opportunity, I think, to celebrate the legacy of the generation that has come before us and to also remember the challenges and the heartache and the sorrow of the generation that came before us. And we're just so honored as Believe Limited to have a small, teeny, tiny part about telling that story and preserving that legacy. And it's going to be a special time.
0: It is going to be a special time and an emotional one. Get the Kleenex (laughs) ready. I'm not kidding. (laughs) Bring your tissues because there's no avoiding that. All right. With all of that said, I do want to recognize that today's episode would not be possible without our presenting sponsor, as always, Takeda, bleedingdisorders.com. And thank you. Thanks as well for Genentech for supporting the Rare Disease Day segment. Visit thecommunityhelps.com to learn more. Believe it or not, we'll be back before long, listeners. So Amy Board, Bloodstream takes a short break and is back on March 8th. What do we got coming up then?
1: Honestly, I have no idea. We have so many <laughs> interviews in the hopper. I'm not kidding. Listeners, we have so much stuff. We have so much, so many segments. We have so many cool interviews. I, I don't even know where to begin. And honestly, I don't know who's going to make it on March 8th. Like, I don't know. And I'm not <laughs> no. making that up. Keith is looking no. at me, like, <laughs> right now. Like, I don't even know.
0: <laughs> well, only one way to find out. That's the best pitch that we can (laughs) do. That's what's happening right now. (laughs) And with that... That is all for this episode. Be sure to subscribe to Bloodstream so that you'll get that March 8th episode when it goes live with whatever it goes live with.
1: Whatever, whatever happens. And as always, please email us at bloodstreammedia.com. or you can like ping us on social media, Patrick and myself. I know that this episode might have, um, I don't know, provoked some things, triggered some things. Always feel free to reach out and uh, to share some of those feelings. If you'd like to uh, share it on the podcast, we would be open to hear more
0: and just to let you know we do have a social digital media team that is monitoring those accounts so if it ever feels like oh you see believe limited you see bloodstream but you don't Yay! see me and Amy you know to Amy's point even if it, it's more sensitive human beings who know what's going on are working those accounts so if you connect with bloodstream or believe limited you will be taken care of with Heck that yes. I am your host Patrick James Lynch
1: and I'm your other host Amy board
0: and until next time happy Happy Rare Disease Day, Happy Zebra Day, take self-care of yourself, and bye, everybody.
1: Bye-bye, everybody.